Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast, brought to you by Advisorpedia. In this series, we interview innovators from across the financial services industry to help you understand who they are, what they do, and why that matters to you and your clients. And now, please join our special guest host, Michael Skaplin. Uh, good afternoon, and welcome to the Axos Clearing Axe Kicker podcast. I'm your host, Michael Skaplin, head of business development for Axos Clearing the clearing division of Axos Financial. On the Axe Kicker podcast, we cover a wide range of topics from the evolution of clearing to technology innovations and our last podcast on regulatory reporting. Uh, but today we have a very special guest. We want to talk about the market in general, uh, where we're headed today, uh, where he thinks we're going. So uh, he's the chief investment officer of Tomatica Research, the lead portfolio manager for Action Alert Plus newsletter. He's a contributor, an author, an assistant professor, I'd like to welcome Chris Versace to the Axe Kicker podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. That is, uh, I sound like a busy person. You are. You are a very busy person. So uh, we had the opportunity to meet uh, a couple of years ago when mm-hmm. you did the keynote speech for Axos Clearing Leadership Summit. So I'm familiar with uh, with your works and uh, your, your podcasting and your, your articles, uh, but for the audience out there, tell us a little bit about Chris Versace, uh, who you are, where you came from, and uh, and your passion about the market. All right. Well, I'll try to do so in uh, rather quick fashion. No need to bore everybody on this. But you know, for the longest time, I was an equity research analyst on uh, quote Wall Street, working at uh, Solomon Brothers, DLJ, FBR, all in equity research. And at one point, you know, going back now, I want to say 15, 16 years, I started to develop this thematic framework that we use that really looks at the shifting landscapes, if you will, of um, the economy, psychographics, demographics, um, technology, regulatory mandates, all of these things. And and really what we're looking for is structural change. And what we found is we can correctly identify structural change. We can identify the companies that are most uh, poised to benefit from that, that pushes on their revenue, pushes on their cash flow, pushes on their earnings. You know, uh, in, in the lexicon of Wall Street, it drives alpha. So what we, what we try to identify is those companies. And when you take that alpha generation, it tends to lead to a combination of earnings growth, multiple expansion, rising stock prices. So that, that for the most part, that's how I tend to look at the world. But, you know, we've uh, over this last year, <laughs> we've had a lot to deal with. Everything from uh, the Russia-Ukraine war to a Fed that is hiking rates, rampant inflation, supply chains, and and a whole host of other issues. And uh, as we uh, talk today, the question is, will the debt ceiling agreement get through Congress? So a lot to talk about, a lot to factor into our thinking. Uh, But then again, that's what I'm here for. Yeah. So, so where do you want to start? I mean, we've got a stock market with a range bound, the S&P between 38 and, uh, and 4,200. Uh, you touched on inflation, no pun intended. It's on the rise. Uh, the, uh, the market uh, may cut rates in the next, uh, in, in Q2. So- No, what- no, that is not going to happen. Let me stop you right there. So, so let, let me see if I can address some of this stuff. So yes, if you look back over the last 10 months, the S&P 500, the preferred market barometer is trapped between 3,800 and 4,200. And no matter what the market throws at it, we can't break out of it to the upside. We don't break below it to the downside. So we're, we're kind of caught in this trading range, if you will. Now, I, I would argue that there are some areas that are, quote, poised to prosper 
as we move into the second half of the year and beyond. A lot of that is tied to the stimulus spending out of Washington, whether that is going to be uh, the Biden Infrastructure Act, the CHIPS Act, or the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. The way I look at it is we're going to be building things that's going to add um, revenue, profits, cash flow, blah, 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 to a, a certain area of companies. You know, uh, we like the non uh, companies tied into non-residential construction because they'll benefit from the overall infrastructure boom, highways, roads, uh, airports, you know, bridges, tunnels, and the like. But we also have the EV charging build out. Uh, so, you know, companies like a charge point. And then uh, finally, I mentioned the CHIPS Act, the reshoring of, of US chip capacity. Here, it's companies like Applied Materials, LAM Research that are poised to benefit. But that's, those are, you know, a select area or set of areas. When we look at the market overall, I do think it's going to continue to be somewhat range bound as we go through the year. Um, my thinking is that, yes, we do get a debt ceiling deal. We avoid that. No surprise to anybody because, of course, they were going to do that. But we have to go down to the wire, of course. That's just the way politics works these days. Um, but what happens once we do get that deal? Now, all of a sudden, it's back to some of the issues that we were dealing with earlier in the year. Earnings expectations, the rate of the economy in terms of growth, and what the Fed has to do. And this is where I, sorry, I interrupted you. But you know there will be no rate cut coming in the second half of the year. And I, I say that because over the last few weeks, the market is starting to wrap its head around the fact that inflation is persistent. We, we can look at the core CPI for the first four months of the year, totally range bound, not making a lot of progress. Right before the Memorial Day weekend, we got the April core PCE price index that actually ticked higher to 4.7%. We know the Fed's not going to like that. We continue to hear companies talking about um, wage pressures, tight labor market. We'll be getting some data uh, for the month of May that I'll probably point to that. So it's really hard to see the Fed cutting rates in the second half of the year. And, and I've been talking about this for some time. And you know, over the last, yeah, I want to say several weeks, two months, something like that, we've started to see the CME FedWatch tool factor out those rate cuts. The bigger question now is, will the Fed at their June meeting that ends on the 14th actually raise rates one more time? And your per personal and professional opinion, do you think we have one more quarter point coming on? So, you know, it seems that way. And I, I'm hedging just a wee bit. And I'll, I'll, I'll say that for, well, because uh, we will get the May PMI data from ISM and S&P Global. That'll tell us more about the speed of the economy, as well as some comments on inflation. Then we'll get the May employment report. You know, how, how tight does the labor market remain? Um, you know, what are wage pressures? We'll get the same data from ADP's national employment report as well. And then, of course, right before the Fed meeting, we've got the May CPI and PPI data. So, the, you know, there's a lot driving... Um, any potential revisions between now and the 14th of June. So uh, do I think based on what I've seen thus far? Yes, but I have to react to the data as we get it. Right. And there's a lot of data points that are going into that uh, that we'll see come to market on the next two weeks to see if there's possibly a, a cut, uh, not a cut, but a, a, a one more hike uh, or if it remains flat. I'm, I'm with you. I think there might be one more uh, lever that's pulled as they, they uptick it one more time and then kind of step back and see where the world takes us and see what happens over the next couple of weeks and, and see where that moves us. Uh, on inflation, do you think that that's going to continue to rise or is there something that's going to break that point uh, and flatten that out at all? 
you know, we are seeing areas of improvement, you know, particularly on the manufacturing side of the economy. We can look at certain commodities kind of as a result. But remember that some of that is being driven by the expectation that at some point, this much talked about recession will rear its head in the second half of the year. But, you know, as we're sitting here talking today, you know, the GDP now by the Atlanta Fed sees, you know, uh, GDP for the second quarter of 1.9%. That's actually a little stronger than the 1.3% we saw in the March quarter. So the economy, whether we use that GDP data or other economic data that we've gotten, it, to be fair, you know, there, again, there's a lot being thrown at it, but it continues to hold up better than expected, some would argue, better than feared. So, you know, the longer it does that, I think the harder the inflation fight, because remember the Fed, they only have certain tools, right? They can't really hit the supply side of the economy. They can only really hammer at the demand side. And despite everything that they've done, right? You know, the, the inflation pressure that we've seen in certain pockets are still persisting. And it's almost as if they're thumbing their nose at what the Fed has done. Ha ha ha, you haven't got me yet. And, and do I think it will ultimately happen? I do. Um, I, I think what's kind of muddled things in the very near term is some folks were expecting the impact of the recent bank failures to have a far more pronounced impact on tighter credit. Now, it could still happen, right? When we looked at the SLUS report that the Fed put out, you know, it came out in April. If you look at the timing going back to the bank failures, they were, you know, early to mid-March. So there is a lag effect with this. I think we'll know more when we get the July report. Um, but the same is true for monetary policy. If you look at where the Fed funds rate was entering uh, 2022 compared to where it is today, the Fed has done a lot in the last year. And to some extent, we have to wait for all of this to catch up. Um, so ultimately, I do think inflation will get beaten down. I just think it's going to take a lot longer than uh, the herd you know, hoped it will. And do you think that that herd, that, that retail community, mom and dad at home, are they over leveraging themselves in this inflation environment? Are we seeing them go too much in housing or too much in that extra car or some other piece where they're dialing into this inflationary uh, hit where they're, they're taking on more and more responsibility. Do you think that bubble bursts at some point and, uh, and there's another crash of some sort? Well, I mean, it's, it's a total concern, right? Because the consumer directly and indirectly is about two thirds plus or minus the economy. So of course we have to be paying attention to that. And, you know, again, if you look at the recent data, they've been holding up better than expected. But once you go below the surface, you start to see that they have been tapping their credit cards, you know, even more so. Uh, we can see that in the, the monthly um, data that we get. And we know interest rates are higher. So that means their debt service is incrementally higher. At some point, it will start to sap their spending. And when we think uh, about some of the comments we heard coming out of the recent earnings season towards the tail end that focused on retailers, Walmart, Costco, Target, and the like, you know, they are seeing the consumer at the margin you know, trade down. They're looking for folks to... Um, shop where they can stretch their spending dollars. That's why Walmart, Costco were beneficiaries, but others, when you look at like Foot Locker, Abercrombie and the like, continuing to have a very tough time despite working down their excessive inventories. So I do think that we, as we move into the second half of the year, watching the consumer will be key, no question. And do you think this will continue to move the closure of some of the brick and mortar shops that we see? I mean, if you walk around some of the malls, uh, I do see a lot of turn between the stores, right? These big box stores are starting to shelter 
not all of their locations, of course, but uh, from time to time, you see that as you walk to the mall, that there are less and less stores uh, that are operating brick and mortar. Would you think that will continue to to force closures? I, I think on a select basis, I you know, yes, I, I, I think candidly, the real estate market uh, commercial real estate in particular is kind of in for a tough time. I mean, you're you're talking about that. We obviously know that in certain cities, uh, the return to the office really hasn't happened as uh, some had thought it would pan out. San Francisco, look out. Um, but you know, the other area too is you know, if you kind of connect the dots for digital shopping and you look at some of the other areas that are seeing their businesses transformed by, let's just call it digitization. Uh, I, I really wonder, you know, on the banking footprint, like, uh, you know, all, all these individual bank branches, I, I just wonder, like, do we need as many as there are when people are using the digital services on their smartphones as much? Um, you know, to me, that's that's a big question. And I say that where I live in Northern Virginia, I mean, there's, I can't even tell you how many Bank of America, Wells Fargo, um, I forget the name of the bank, that's the merger between... Um, SunTrust and the other one because it's a ridiculous name. Um, you know, you know, it make, made no sense. But but there's so much of it. There's so much capacity there, but the demand isn't there. So I, I, I do wonder about the longer term impact of the commercial real estate market. On, on the other hand, you know, from a demographic perspective, we continue to age, and from a pure um, you know uh, digital network, digital content, digital consumption perspective, we know that we need more data centers. So, you know, I think commercial real estate is going to be a mixed bag. Right. And when you and when you talk about online banking, right, you take a step back and you look at Axos, Axos as a whole, uh, we have multiple divisions. So our, uh, you know, one of our divisions is Axos Bank. Axos is an online digital bank, uh, one of the best in the business when you talk about uh, consumer investments for uh, auto loans, car loans, college students, uh, everything that the that a bank needs and has, we have that, right? We have an online digital footprint. Uh, we have no brick and mortars. We're not uh, out there on every corner like some of these other big banks are. And that allows us to invest in our technology and in our people. So when you think about online banking, I certainly think banks like Axos uh, are, are, are the future because we've built our footprint around that. We're not going into the real estate market to to buy up space and, and put our brand on every block, but it, it comes out in the technology that we provide, which offers an underlying current for other other firms. Uh, Access has been successful with partnering with firms like Nationwide and H&R Block uh, and other vendors where we white label our technology product to get them into banking. So I think that online footprint will, will continue to push forward. I think we don't need as many brick and mortar shops or banks uh, as we used to and, and invest that money in the people and the tech uh, that we have. I agree. Uh, and, and speaking about banking and, and uh, you know, and these banks that are, you know, like Signature, are, are there any other banks that these retail investors or uh, institutions should be looking out for? Is there anybody else on your radar that might misstep or footfall or what's what's next in that arena? Well, you know, I hate to say it, but typically where there's smoke, there's fire. And, you know, it's going to take some time to weave through this. I, I, I do think, however, that as more time passes from that, you know, that March event, you know, um, April as well, and we get more data on hand, I, I think we'll have a better feel for whether or not the absolute worst of that mini banking crisis is over. My sense is, is that it is. Um, you know, the Federal Reserve officials who have made the rounds in the last couple of weeks continue to talk about 
you know, what good shape the banking system is in. Um, I would counter by saying that's part of their job. Um, you know, the, the, the Fed's kind of a, a funny beast, if you will, because they, uh, they need to be upbeat about the economy. Uh, because if they're not, Michael, what happens when the Fed gets, you know, worried? Right. It all of a sudden becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to the downside. So. Right. And the, and the speed at which information moves these days with all your uh, social messaging and, and social platforms out there, uh, even false messaging spreads fast like wildfire. So, yeah, they certainly have to be careful with that uh, when, when we're talking about the market and where it's going and what these banks are doing. Uh, again, talking about Axos, that's why we diversify. Right. We've got the bank. We've got Axos Clearing, which caters to 70 broker dealers. We've got Axos, uh, our custody division. Uh, advisory services, which caters to uh, 200 uh, RIAs. We've got a uh, access invest for uh, retail investors. And we also have a, a digital assets book that's, uh, that's, that's being opened up. So it's important to diversify across all that and make sure that we're providing a strong infrastructure for the retail investors out there. Um, so talking about retail investing and, and investors, uh, we talk about uh, you know some of these positions. There's a handful of stock that seem to be driving the market as we kind of move away from the banking. Let's talk about the, the stock yeah, market. Yeah. Uh, so we've got Microsoft, we've got Google, and, and breaking news this morning saw Nvidia hit uh, a trillion in market capital, uh, right? So it's all you know all monopoly money, and it's all you know it just keeps moving up and up and up. Well, it's all uh, it's all I shouldn't say it's all. It's predominantly AI driven. And, and what's interesting in, in getting ready to talk with you, Michael. Uh, I did a little homework in um, during the first quarter earnings season, 110 companies mentioned AI on their calls, right? And, and some of them, you know, you rattled off, right? But what gets me a little concerned is it's almost like PTSD back from the dot-com bubble, right? Where in 1999, every company was all of a sudden, oh, we're doing this online. We're, we're going to offer this, yada, 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 yada. And, and you're starting to hear companies, you know, like, you know, McDonald's, CVS, J&J, and all these others talking about how AI is going to really positively impact their business. And I would argue that a lot of them don't really know that. I, I, I think there's a big fear out there of, oh, geez, I better say something because I can't afford to be, you know, viewed as being left behind. And, you know, that's true, I think, in the case for, you know, Google and Microsoft, where Google was, you know, it was thought to be behind a little bit after Microsoft inked uh, their deal with uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT, right? But, micro, but uh, Google, you know, recovered, came on strong, releasing all sorts of products and services. And I, I think what we're going to see over time is that, yes, much like the internet, uh, AI will have a transformative effect uh, over the medium to longer term. But I think in the very near term, a lot of these stocks are getting, you know, let, let's just call it what it is, out over their skis. I mean, you can't have NVIDIA trading at 25 times revenue and think, wow, there's got to be a lot of upside left. Right. And that's, and, and you know, and AI becomes the, the new buzzword. So again, Correct. we, you know, catering to broker dealers, we've seen that as, as deals came to market and everything was a bio for the longest time, bio, 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 pharma, pharma, pharma. Uh, and then it was blockchain, blockchain, blockchain and, and new deals and, and companies were switching their footprint from one to the other, uh, trying to push that market, push that next deal. Uh, so we saw a lot of that when we talk about the retail broker dealer. So I think that AI uh, is like that to some extent. I mean, Microsoft and Google, obviously, there's going to be use cases in there. Those are, you know, technology firms, technology forward. Uh, and there's other firms that are, are certainly going to benefit because they'll, in, you know, embed that into their infrastructure. But, you know, yeah, I, I argue that McDonald's may or may not have a, a strong play on AI. I mean, maybe they do. Maybe it, it orders a better burger faster. 
but well, it's funny you say that because <laughs> because McDonald's they have. I mean, look, they're all about driving productivity, right? So yeah. um, they have been working on AI. Um, to improve the drive-through experience, right? So if, if you think about what I said earlier about a tight labor market, right? You, and you think about where wages are going, you think what minimum wages have moved up to and what companies like McDonald's have to, have to pay just to get people in there now, they are increasingly leveraging technology. And it's just not just McDonald's. You know, you, you can take a look at, I think Chipotle is looking at robotics and how to do some of the you know, uh, kitchen stuff that they're doing. Um, and there's a publicly traded company called uh, Presto, ticker symbol PRST, that they have developed an AI for drive-through where they're working with companies like uh, Del Taco and Checkers. You know, so there, there will be disruption as a result of AI just the way the internet happened, right? But I, I think the, the, the key here is if you were to, you know, time machine back into 1999, 2000, you know, the, what was the internet back then compared to today where you stream all sorts of content? You can hold, you know, live meetings just like we're doing this right now. You can shop online. You can pay bills online. You can order food online, right? You know, almost anything you could think of, you could do, right? Back in 1999, 2000, you couldn't do any of that, really, in a, in a seamless, easy way. And the valuations reflected all that future promise. And I, I think we're seeing a little bit of that now with AI. Um, my, my preference would be to see perhaps those stocks come in or, or the technology development kind of grow, allow those stocks to grow into their valuation. Right. And I, I would almost take the other side of that. Uh, some of that stuff was available in 99, obviously not the ordering uh, of food and, and Grubhub and, and things like that. But the internet was taking off and I was born into that generation where I was just at the right age where the technology was starting to come. I was working at an online a broker dealer, one of the first ones at, at, at Daytech Online, right? So we were starting to build that infrastructure. I think the trust wasn't there. I don't think everybody had access. Uh, the access point wasn't there, but you could certainly order stuff online. Uh, people were, again, somewhat hesitant to it because they didn't know what the, the internet was, uh, but that was, it was starting that, that seed for my generation and a little behind me uh, was starting to get in there. Uh, it was the, you know, the upper generations that were starting to, to shy away from it. Uh, but, but it was a tremendous uptick uh, just waiting to be uncovered, and yeah, everybody you know jumped on that dot com dot com bubble uh, until they burst uh, because they were just saying it was dot com or or you know. Well, think think of all those companies like eToys or Webvan or you know all these yeah. ones that had the promise of of what may come, and you know for a variety of reasons they and the host of others just couldn't make it, right? And you know maybe it's a little different this time, but I, I think the point we're making here is that. There is, there is a fair amount of, um, you know, normally I would say opium, but in this case, I'm, gonna, I'm going to say uh, hypuation, which is the combination of hype and valuation that's kind of driving these, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight stocks that are powering the market higher. Right. Right. And it just keeps pushing and pushing. So uh, as we're talking about the market, I know we, we kind of touched on uh, thematic investing a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, so I want to steer you back into that because I know that's a topic that's, that's near and dear to your heart. Mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, keynote speech that you gave with our broker dealers, that was a, a, a very crucial part uh, was the thematic investing. And the broker dealers really appreciated that because some of them didn't see the market the way that you look at it. And I think you opened their eyes to it. So uh, when you talk about thematic versus sector investing, uh, for the audience, what's the difference? What is what is thematic, and and why is it different than than sector investing? So, 
I think the I think the best example that I can give is when we look at the world, the way we look at the world, I'm referring to Thematica now, in thematic investing. You know, we we have a very painstaking process. We're really trying to, trying to identify the structural changes that are driving a company's business. I, I alluded to that earlier. We also have this thematic scorecard. Uh, where we rank companies relative to their revenue or profit exposure because we want high thematic purity, right? That combination, right structural change, high thematic purity, that's going to isolate the companies that you really, really want. When you look at sector investing, um, it's 11 baskets that have to cover thousands of companies, right? So, you know, the, the, what, the best example would be, well, technology. Okay, uh, fine, kind of big bucket there. Um, is what's going to drive applied materials, semiconductor manufacturing, the same thing that's going to drive, you know, Microsoft? Is it the same thing that's going to drive touchpad company and human interface uh, synaptics, right? You know, is it going to drive, you know, PayPal or, or some of these other, you know, fintech companies that get bundled in under technology? So the, the issue, I, the big issue I have with it is it's a very wide brush sector investing. And it kind of doesn't really speak to, what a company does and what's pushing on its business, its earnings. That's that's the great identifier with thematic investing when it's done right. It also allows you, again, to identify those structural changes, but it also allows you to sidestep companies that you know might be left behind. And I, where I think this is kind of an interesting topic uh, is when you look at ETF construction, right? Because some ETFs have really high purity, other companies you know, uh, sorry, other ETF products have far less. And you, you know, it's really a case of let the buyer beware. In other words, know what you're buying inside that product. So if I'm, if I'm a broker dealer or a registered rep or the retail investor, how do I find out more about thematic investing? How do I, how do I research that and learn more about that uh, to, to integrate it into my portfolios? So I would say you could do a couple of things. Uh, the first would be march on over to tematica.substack.com. Mm -hmm. That's where we talk about our um, investment themes through our thematic signals product. We'll also allude to our uh, indices and uh, models as well. You can also go to tematicaresearch.com. Uh, and then the third resource that I would point you to Actually, third and fourth. Third would be go pick up uh, over at Amazon Cocktail Investing. That was the book that I co-authored with Lenore Hawkins a while back, and you know we really kind of dug deep into um, thematic investing. Um, and then finally, I would say if you're looking to understand how I'm putting it to use, kind of day in day, day in day out, go over to aap.thestreet.com. That's the Action Alerts Plus portfolio that I'm the lead portfolio manager for, and you can see again how we're implementing thematics in an active portfolio. All right, and, and where else can we find you? Are you uh, speaking at any conferences, trade shows, uh, anything, uh, any new publications on the rise? Uh, I mean, there's always something going on. I don't know that I have any conferences coming up. I know that when I get back from vacation, I'll be in New York, I'll be on with Yahoo Finance, TD Ameritrade Network, Asset TV, and I believe the street is having an event on June 16th at the New York Stock Exchange. So odds are I'll be there, but uh, I got to be honest with you, you're, you're one of my last to-dos before I get to Greece. So I'll worry about all that when I get back. All right, fair enough. And, and one last thing, any... Uh... The, anything the end customer should be should be looking out for, or anything they should be worried about as they move forward 
uh, with this market and, and what we're seeing today? That's a great question. Um, so the one thing that I would point out is when you look at the, the market, and again, I define that as the S&P 500, you know, it's trading somewhere between 18 and a half and 19 times expected 2023 earnings. But here's the rub. Okay, over the last two quarters, we've seen uh, quarterly EPS for the S&P 500 actually decline. Okay, so the big thing that I'll be watching is expectations for the second half of the year. And, and as we tape this today, Michael, um, the S&P 500 earnings in 2H 2023 need to grow more than 7% to hit the consensus forecast, right? It might happen. It might not happen. There's some concern, again, depending on what we see in the economic data, how far the Fed goes. And then if you were to say, Chris, but what about 2024? Great question. Because the consensus forecast there has them growing at 11.5%. And if you, again, if you just think about the economy, you know, the consumer, if you think about where rates are going, you know, my sense is those numbers might have to come down a little bit. And that means that, you know, the market is probably going to top out 4,200, 4,300. So the message is pick your spots, use pullbacks. If you like a stock, you want to buy it, average in, but don't chase it, especially when the market's bumping up against the 42, 4,300 level. Fair enough. Very good. Chris, I thank you very much for joining Axos Clearing and the Axe Kicker podcast. My name is Michael Skaplin. Uh, you can find us at www.axosclearing.com. And uh, again, thank you very much for your time, Chris, and look forward to uh, seeing you out there soon. Uh, wonderful. Look forward to it. All right. Thanks. This has been a special guest edition of the Power Your Advice podcast. Please visit us at advisorpedia.com and follow us for timely updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook with the handle at Advisorpedia. For everyone at Advisorpedia, our producer, Julia Smolin, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, we thank you for listening.